Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of Nehemiah, the second chapter, verses 17 through 20. In your pew Bible, that's on page 429. Nehemiah 2, verses 17 through 20. Then I said to them, You see the distress that we're in, how Jerusalem lies waste, and its gates are burned with fire. Come and let us build the wall of Jerusalem, that we may no longer be a reproach. And I told them of the hand of my God, which has been good upon me, and also of the king's words that he had spoken to me. So they said, Let us rise up and build. Then they set their hands to do this good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they laughed at us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you are doing? Will you rebel against the king? So I answered them and said to them, The God of heaven himself will prosper us, therefore we his servants will arise and build, but you have no heritage or right or memorial in Jerusalem. Good morning. It is good to see each of you. You braved the cold and the little bit of the snow that we had, and we're at, you've come together, and we're here to worship God, and what a blessing it is to be able to be out and to have this facility and to have a congregation to worship with. Keep in mind, we want others to have that blessing. And uh, next week is Bible Class Emphasis Day. It'd be a wonderful opportunity to invite someone to come and be a part of your Bible classes. If you haven't been being a part of a Bible class, today is a good morning to start as we begin a new quarter. Uh, this would be a great time to get into a Bible class and then next week invite someone to come and be a part of it. Do pick up the postcards. They're in the foyer. Uh, be thinking about who you can invite this week and be sure and be prayerful about that. Let's try to reach out and make a difference in somebody's life. questionable looking fella goes into a cafe and he orders a milkshake. The waiter, not to be had, says, listen fella, I've seen your type. I don't think you can pay for a milkshake. You pay for it first, then I'll give you a milkshake. Looking at the waiter, he says, you are pretty good at reading character. I don't have money to pay for a milkshake, but what if I could give you some entertainment that's just short of a miracle? Would you give me a milkshake? He says, what do you got? He reaches in his pocket and he pulls out a hamster. Little hamster jumps out of his hand on the table, down to the floor, across the cafe, up to a piano, and he plays Bach in a very beautiful way. After that, he breaks out in some old-time rock and roll. The whole cafe is enjoying it. The fellow brought over a milkshake and said, hey, you deserve a milkshake after that. That's amazing. He said, hey, I'd like to have some fries with that milkshake. What if I gave you some more entertainment, just short of a miracle? Could I get some fries? He says, what do you got now? He reaches another pocket and he pulls out a frog. Frog leaps off the table, off his hand onto the table, and he stands there and he sings. Sounds just like Elvis Presley. I did it my way. Oh, the cafe was going crazy again. Over, he brought him over some fries. Then, the uh, one of the uh, customers in the cafe walked across the floor there and said, "Fellow, I want to buy your frog. I'll give you three hundred dollars for that singing frog." 
Guy said, sure. Gave him his frog, took $300, scooped up his hamster, scooped up his fries, scooped up his shake, and he ran out the door. The waiter ran after him and said, man, don't leave now. He says, no, I got to go. I got to go. He said, hey, you're crazy to sell that frog for $300. You could have sold that frog for millions. He said, oh, no, not really. See, the truth is my hamster is a ventriloquist too. <laughs> now, this morning, if I could pull out a, a hamster that could play the piano and make it look like a frog is singing, I would say that you would probably never forget that as long as you live. You know, there are a lot of things that happen in our life that we don't forget as long as we live. Any of you that were old enough to remember in 1963, November, you remember when John F. Kennedy was shot. Not only do you remember it, you remember exactly where you're standing. You remember some of the surroundings in the room, what you were looking at whenever you heard the news. Or if you were alive and old enough to remember, you remember January of 1986. You remember where you were whenever you heard that the Challenger space shuttle ended in a horrific explosion. As a matter of fact, surveys say that 85% of Americans knew about that within the first hour that it took place. And of course, almost all of us here would remember 9-11-2001. And our young ones here... As they become adults and older adults, they'll have children and grandchildren that'll look at pictures of the old skyline of New York City and they'll say, Mama, Daddy, Granddaddy, Grandmama, tell us about that. Don't you remember that? Tell us about that. Because you see, there are things that we simply do not ever forget because they changed our life. We think about Nehemiah building back a wall. And it is an exciting book to study. We like to study successes. But have you really stopped as you've studied the book of Nehemiah and building up the wall? Have you ever stopped to really think about why was the wall torn down to begin with? Why was there that kind of destruction? Why was Jerusalem just prior to that in shambles? Why was it that that Nehemiah said every portion of the wall was torn down and the gates were burned? Why was the wall in such a terrible shape? And then another question I need to ask about the wall. Why why was the wall so important? You see, we live in a time where when we think about military defenses, we would never think about a wall in the same way that they would because we think about aircraft. And if they had aircraft in their day, the wall would not have an importance. But you say, in their day and time, you could not have hardly any greater means of defense as a city as a strong, thick, tall wall with city gates to match it. Because as long as you could keep the enemy on the outside, you could keep the people safe on the inside. And this morning as we develop this lesson to think about a wall, I want you to think about the fact that God wants to put a petition around you. God wants to keep you safe on the inside because He knows that we live in a world that chooses not to live a safe life, that chooses to do things that harms themselves emotionally, physically, financially, and most important, spiritually. And God says, I want to invite you into a wall. I want to invite you into where I set boundaries. And I want you to imagine a box when I say this. Everything I ask of you is for your good. Everything that I ask you not to do is for your good. If you'll just do what I ask, and if you'll just not do what I say don't do, within this box, I can protect you. 
Will you allow me to guard you? Or will you step out of that and say, God, I don't want your wall. I don't want your protection. Do you remember the beautiful passage that the psalmist wrote about the family and the family that leans upon God in Psalms 127 and 1? Unless the Lord builds the city, the laborers labor in vain. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. You see there, the analogy, even in those words, is God wants to build a wall around our family. God wants to build the wall and allow us to climb up into that wall and be the tower, the watchmen that say, we're going to watch for what God says to watch out for. We're not going to let the things that God says, don't let these into your family. We're going to bring in the things that God says, bring into your family. It's the same kind of language that even Satan used when Job asked God. When God asked Satan, have you tried my servant Job? And you remember Satan's answer? Haven't you put a hedge about him and about his family? You see, even Satan was aware of the fact that whenever individuals allow God to build a wall around their lives, it is hard to touch them. I'm not saying it's impossible. I'm not saying that we then have a life that, that we have no temptations or hardships. But the fact is, it's hard to destroy them. Because God protects and God filters out the things so that literally more will not come upon us than what we can stand. 1 Corinthians 10 and 13. And so with that in mind, I ask you again as we go back to our text, why was that wall torn down to begin with? I hope you have your Bibles. If not, I hope you grab a pew Bible because many of the passages this morning will not be on the screen. But I'd like for you to be turning to 2 Kings, the 25th chapter. And the Bible that is there in the pew with you, it's on 356. 356. 2 Kings, the 25th chapter. Notice as we begin reading in verse 1 of the 25th chapter. Now it came to pass in the ninth year of his reign. And if you'll read the verses before, we're talking about Zedekiah. Zedekiah was the last king that would lead Judah as then they would be overtaken by King Nebuchadnezzar. And that's what we're reading here in verse 1. In the 10th month, on the 10th day of the month that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon and all his army came against Jerusalem and encamped against it. They built a siege wall around it so that the city was besieged until the 11th year of King Zedekiah. Now, from this passage and other passages, we can put together the fact that they literally were under siege for eight months. And then the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine had become so severe in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. Do you remember that before Moses died, he stood on the edge of Canaan's land and he was pointing to the fact that they would be given that land of inheritance. But he had a final plea. This is the book of Deuteronomy. He had a final plea that he wanted to make to the people. And that's much of the book of Deuteronomy. And a part of that final plea was the 28th chapter. He told them, he said, there are things that if you will keep the word of God and obey it diligently, God will make sure that these things are always offered to you. And one of them was protection from the enemies. And that you would be protected from pestilence and famines and etc., disease and even mental illness. But then he says, if you do not, and we go to verse in the 28th chapter in verse 15, and he says, but it shall come to pass if you do not obey the voice of the Lord your God to observe carefully all his commandments and his statutes which I command you today, that all these curses will be put upon you. 
And he gives a long, long list of curses. He talks about how it's going to hit them financially. He talks about the disease that's going to come. He talks about the uh, destruction through nature that's going to come upon them. But he even mentions the fact of the siege that they will experience that will be so severe that beginning in verse 54, he says, The sensitive and the very refined man among you will be a hostile toward his brother, toward the wife of his bosom, and toward the rest of his children who leaves behind. Now, wait a minute. This very dignified and very refined man. Not, not that questionable fella. That very defined, uh, dignified and, and defined man. That man is going to do something where he literally turns his back on his brother and on his wife and on his children. During this siege, what is he going to do where even the refined individual does such unthoughtful things? Well, notice what he's going to do, the rest of it, so that he will not give any of them the flesh of his children whom he will eat. Because he has nothing left in the siege and desperate straits in which your enemy shall distress you at your gates. It is unthinkable. Here is a very very dignified man that's going to take the life of one of his children. He's going to eat the child to survive. But he is in such a desperate place of starvation that he refuses to tell anybody else in the family what he's doing because he doesn't want to share the meal with anyone. The next two or three verses tell the same thing about the woman in that day and time that would give birth. She wouldn't tell anybody she was giving birth because she wanted to eat the baby and the placenta herself. How bad was the siege that we're reading about in 2 Kings, the 25th chapter? This morning, I'm not trying to gross you out. I want you to see that when we began this lesson and we said, there are some days that you would never forget, I assure you that if you could have sat down with the few individuals that survived the 18 months of the siege where... Nebuchadnezzar, he chose not to immediately bust through the gates of the city, but he chose to build another wall around the wall of the city, and that wall was simply to keep supplies from going in. The idea is we'll weaken them to such a state that when we go through the wall, nobody can stop us. Friends, if you would have lived through that 18 months, and then when we go to the 25th chapter of 2 Kings, we read down to verse 3, notice verse 4, then the city wall was broken through. If you would have lived through the city wall being broken through, if you would have lived through all of the war that would have taken place there, they went in and they looted everything that they wanted. They began to tear down and burn down houses. As a matter of fact, the destruction was so great that from the time they stepped over the wall for the first time, it took them three months, three weeks to getting around to burning and destroying the temple. And then before they left town, they wanted to show all of the enemies around them that Jerusalem had no strength whatsoever. So what did they do? If you don't understand this, you'll never understand the book of Nehemiah. To show that God's people were a total disgrace. They tore down the wall. Because if you wanted to show the pity of a nation, leave them without a fortification of defense. With no wall, they were anybody's next meal. 
And so it was. We see here the destruction. That as a matter of fact, as we talk about remembering, there's a sect of Jews even today that they have three weeks of mourning that they consider holy days even today. Every year they celebrate those three weeks. During those three weeks, if you're a part of their sect, you're not allowed to have any kind of celebrations. No one is allowed to marry during that time. No anniversaries, no birthdays are celebrated during that time because that is the anniversary date from the time that the first Babylonian set foot across the wall, verse 4, to the time over those three weeks that they burned the temple. And they still remember those as a time of mourning. But for the next few minutes, let's ask and use two answers to answer this question. What is it that tears down the walls? Before that wall was ever torn down physically, there was a spiritual wall that they had already torn down. Judah had already crossed it, and now God is speaking through prophets, Jeremiah and Ezekiel. They were contemporaries, speaking to Zedekiah, the last king, making a final plea to say, won't you just do it God's way now? Now, now we're going to lay out something here that would be challenging. But that doesn't excuse Zedekiah. God gives all of us things that are challenging. That test to see whether or not we're faithful. To see this, if you will, go with me to Jeremiah the 27th chapter. Jeremiah the 27th chapter, we're going to look in, on page 693 in your Bible that's in the pew there. And Jeremiah the 27th chapter, notice what he says to Zedekiah in verse 8. And it shall be... This is Jeremiah 27, verse 8. It shall be that the nation and the kingdom which will not serve Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and which will not put its neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon, that nation I will punish, says the Lord, with the swords, the famine, the pestilence, until I have consumed them by his hand. Now see, this is prophetic. What we have just talked about, about the wall falling the siege, all that is about to come. So before that ever came, the prophet of God comes and says, listen. Now, I want you to imagine how hard this would be for a king. The prophet comes and says, look, because of Judah's past life, your nation is going to fall. Now, if you want to make things better for you and for your family, when Nebuchadnezzar comes over, you need to surrender. That'd be hard, wouldn't it? You want me to just be the king that gives up the nation. That's right. That's all God wants him to do. Surrender. Surrender to Nebuchadnezzar. But now who is he going to have to surrender to first? First, he's going to have to surrender to God. And that's true in all of our lives. One of the greatest challenges that you and I have in our life is to say, I wholly surrender my life to God. God, I'll let you have it your way. Whatever you want, whatever you ask of me, whatever you want of my possessions, whatever you want of my family. God, whatever you want, I surrender it all to you. 
As a matter of fact, he even says in verse 9 and 10, here in this very same reading of Jeremiah, the 27th chapter, he says, therefore, do not listen to your prophets. And he gives a list of others. And he says in 10, for they prophesy a lie to you and remove you far from your land and I will drive you out and you will perish. And you know what happened? The 28th chapter, exactly what the prophet said was going to happen. Hananiah, one of the false prophets now, comes up to him. And it's not these words, but in other words, he says, man, don't give up. Nebuchadnezzar's coming. Bow up, be strong. We're Judah. We can take those people. Don't give up. Now God's saying, surrender. He's getting others around him saying, don't surrender, don't surrender. What is he going to do? Well, we know the rest of that story. He decided not to surrender. That's when the siege wall was built. That's when the horrific things happened. But now, before we see point two, if you will, turn in your Bible to Matthew, the fifth chapter, and I'd like you to see an application to point one. This morning, to just simply try to illustrate the point of surrendering, this is the passage that comes to my mind when I think about surrendering as it relates to practical day-to-day things. Now, when I think about the broad message of surrendering, it's Matthew, the 16th chapter, verse 24, that comes to mind. That's where Jesus said, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. Deny self. Lord, not my will, but your will. I surrender my will to your will. Take up his cross. Lord, I crucify my will. My will is dead. Now I follow your will. Now that sounds real pretty in principle, doesn't it? Oh yeah, I want to be a Christian. I want to surrender my will to God. Okay, the next time somebody's standing in front of us, think how this analogy fits this Old Testament example. And this person has wronged us. This person, by our fleshly nature, deserves to be punished. The question is, am I willing to surrender to God's will? Now, it's going to appear to people around us that we're surrendering to this person. But the reality is we'd be surrendering to God. You see, here's how it would look in real life. Begin in verse 39 in Matthew, the fifth chapter, verse 39. But I tell you not to resist an evil person. Whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn to him also the other. I tell you what, when my boy was a young boy, I taught him, stand up for yourself. You don't let people bully you around. That's the way the world would talk. How does a surrendered parent talk? Boy, that's tough, isn't it? God's never had a problem asking tough things of us. God, what do you want when somebody hits me on my right cheek? I want you to surrender your will to mine, and I want you to turn the other cheek. Verse 40, if anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. I guess this was written for 2009 because it's definitely appropriate. We live in a time where people love to sue. God's people don't love to sue unless it's simply for the law to be upheld. But here, what if somebody wants to sue you? What if somebody wants to take what's not yours? Friends, I'm not saying it's easy. I'm just saying God says, I want you to surrender. Somebody wants your shirt. Go ahead and give them your jacket. And then that Roman guard comes along because he has the authority. He can say, hey, carry my luggage a mile. The very next verse, he says, when you get to the end of that mile, I want you to offer him the second mile. And you do that not because you're surrendering to him. You do that because you're surrendering to me. 
And then he talks about possessions again in 42. Give to him who asks you and for him who wants to borrow from you. Do not turn away. God wants us to surrender our will. He wants to surrender our life. He wants to surrender our days and our time. He wants to surrender our possessions. God wants us to surrender. And he doesn't stop there. He still talks more about surrendering in the 43rd verse about loving your neighbor, 44. Think of these three things that's taught. But I say to you, Love your enemy. How do you do that? Bless those that curse you. Do good to those that hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Now what is that going to look like in the end? Look in verse 48. Therefore you shall be perfect. Just as the Father in heaven is perfect. The idea of perfection there is complete. You want to have a life that is perfect in the sense. You want to have a life that is completely perfect molded to the will of God. You want to be able to say, I have fully surrendered to God's will. The next time someone is cursing you, can you bless them and say good things? The next time someone has clearly identified themselves as your enemy, will you surrender to God and say, I have to find something good to do for them? We won't feel like we want to do something good. Our emotional and our fleshly nature is going to say, I tell you what I'd like to do. I'd like vengeance, but we remember Romans, the 12th chapter, the end of that chapter. That's God's. It belongs to him. God, I'm surrendering to you. What do you want me to do? I want you at the time right now when you want to do something bad, I want you to do something good. Go out and do it for them. Will you pray for those who hurt you? They persecute you. They despitefully use you. Friends, we're talking this morning about putting spiritual boundaries in place and allowing God to build the wall around our life. And I need to realize that as long as I do not surrender my will to God's will, I do not have a defense around me. Listen, if, if it feels like every other week or every other month or every few days or every few hours I'm getting knocked down spiritually and I find myself saying things that I just ought not to say and I find myself doing things I ought not to do and I say, why does this happen? Why can I not just live a Christian life? It may be that I don't have any defense around me and if it's that I do not have a defense around me, it's probably because I've never fully surrendered to the will of God. We're talking about something that has to be, has to have a point in time where there is a beginning, but it is something we have to wake up every day and do. I want to surrender my life to God. But then finally and quickly, I'd like to mention to you, if you want to turn to Jeremiah the 34th chapter, Jeremiah the 34th chapter, I'd like to mention to you not only do we have to surrender, if we're going to have this wall, what tears the wall down? Refusing to surrender our will to God's will. Secondly, refusing to trust God's word. Here's a quick version of this, and you may want to jot them down and go back and look at it later. It's really an interesting story here. You remember those two contemporary prophets that we said? We had Jeremiah 
Can you imagine how Zedekiah could have made excuses? He could have said, I tell you what, God speaks out of both sides of his mouth. That's why I'm not going to listen to him. Because you see, one prophet comes along the 34th chapter and in the middle of verse 3, he says to him, your eyes shall see the eyes of the king of Babylon. He shall speak with you face to face and you shall go to Babylon. Okay, so that's what one of God's prophets said to him. Now go over to Ezekiel, the 12th chapter. In Ezekiel, the 12th chapter, this prophet says something else to him. This prophet says, he's talking about him in in the 12th verse of the 12th chapter and about how when the siege takes place, he's going to tear a hole in the wall and he's going to sneak out and he's going to try to not be found. Then he says in 13, I also spread my net over him and he shall be caught in my snare. You see what he's saying? He's saying, you're going to try to sneak away from Babylon, but I'm going to trap you myself. God's saying this, I'm going to trap you myself so Babylon can... Uh, seed you. And notice what he says. I will bring him to Babylon in the land of the Chaldeans, yet he shall not see it, though he shall die there. So how is it that one prophet is say, you won't ever see the land of Babylon, but yet the other prophet says, you're going to stand face to face with the king and you're going to look at him eye to eye there. Well, I tell you what, that's just the way God is. You can't trust God. Well, turns out that wasn't a contradiction at all. If you'll go back to that 2 Kings, the 25th chapter, we'll read these three verses. We read down a while ago through verse 4, 2 Kings, the 25th chapter. Notice how this story unfolds in verse 5. But the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king, and they overtook him in the plains of Jericho, and all his army was scattered from him. So they took the king, and they brought up to the king of Babylon at Riblah, and they pronounced judgment on him. So what they do? You got this picture in your mind so far? He... He busted through that wall, just like God said he was going to do. And he was going to try to escape, but God made sure that he was captured. When they captured him, they took him to Ripla. As they were going to Ripla from Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar was coming there to meet them. And so now they meet, not in Babylon, but in Ripla. And notice what Nebuchadnezzar orders here. Then they killed the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes, put out the eyes of Zedekiah, bound him with bronze fetters, and took him to Babylon. Both prophets were exactly right. No surprise because it was the word of God. He looked at him face to face, but not in Babylon. He watched his sons executed and then his eyes were probably orgered or punched out. Then blind, he did go to Babylon to die, but he never saw it. I don't know if you've ever even heard the phrase life verse. But if you don't have a life verse, I want to challenge you to get one. And I'm not saying you got to keep it for life, but you need a verse that you say over and over. You say it every day. You memorize it, and it becomes a part of your personal prayer life. What is your life verse? If you don't have a life verse, I want to challenge you right now today to put this one on your mirror, put it in the dash of your car, put it in your prayers, and put it in your mind. Proverbs, the third chapter, verse 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord. Can you trust Him? Trust in the Lord with all thy heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all of your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. Zedekiah just didn't trust God. And he had no defense. No defense when the enemy came. Friends, when Nehemiah built back the wall, the text that is just so capably read for us, if you'll notice there, The reason he said that he wanted that wall built back, he wanted the wall built back so that 
Jerusalem would no longer be a reproach. That word reproach, even in the original language, means disgrace. Nehemiah didn't go back just to build a wall. Nehemiah went back. Isn't this interesting? You remember Ezekiel, the 22nd chapter, when God said before the fall, I'm looking for a man to stand in the gap, and I could not find one. The wall fell. The nation fell. A hundred and sixty years later, Nehemiah goes back to Jerusalem to be that man that would stand in the gap and build back that wall and remove the disgrace of Judah. As he did that, in the eighth chapter, he read the law to them. He had Ezra to read the law. And when they started hearing the word of God for the first time, that generation did not know the law of God. They learned of what God asked and they began to cry. God was glad that they were sorry, but he also wanted to realize that it wasn't hopeless. And he says, do not sorrow for the joy of the Lord is your strength. This morning, God wants to put that protection around you. He wants His joy to be your strength. He wants it to be that strength of defense. Are you a child of His? Are you baptized into His family? Have you been saved by the Son? Maybe along the way you've left the way and you want to come back and you want to know the joy of the Lord again. You want to know salvation. We can help you in any way. Come as we stand as we